2 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 13. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever um, whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And the the land... And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, And they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. 
David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar. Tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. I wonder, have you ever had the experience of the chickens coming home to roost? And I guess we all have in a small way, haven't we? And that gut-wrenching moment when we suddenly realise that our failure... Um, or our wrongdoing has been found out and we've been caught. Or perhaps um, maybe just that moment of a near miss uh, when you think that you have been found out. I guess we've all had that experience in a small way. Um, Every so often we see that it happens on a catastrophic scale. And so imagine the ministry leader um, whose years of sexual sin or financial embezzlement are suddenly laid bare and in a matter of days his ministry is wrecked his family broken, his reputation is left in tatters. And worst of all, perhaps, and worst of all, the whole of his life no longer makes any sort of sense. Or perhaps the family man whose secret vices finally shatter everything that he holds dear. Or perhaps the alcoholic who has successfully concealed years of deceit and addiction, but then the health fails And in a moment, um, everything that's been going on behind the scenes um, suddenly becomes public. Uh, The chickens come home to roost. Uh, From one angle, we love it, don't we? Um, We have a special celebratory word for it in English. Um, It's the word comeuppance. Uh, For many years, my favourite film was the 1994 classic, The Shawshank Redemption. Um, It is a great film if you've got a sort of a strong stomach for bad language. Um, It is still a great film. Um, you might like to watch it. If you have watched it, you might remember the moment when Warden Norton is finally found out. And it is delicious. Uh, my guess is that nobody who has ever watched that film, ever, has felt bad for Warden Norton at that moment. But there is another side to it. I remember a phone call with a friend who was going through something like that. And everything was falling apart and it was very substantially his fault And he was desperate. Gwilym, he said to me, I don't see how it's ever going to get any better. I can't see how I'm going to come back from this. And the awful thing was that as I listened to him speaking on the phone, I thought, you know what? I think you might be right. Sometimes the messes that we make really are big enough that there is no way back from them. Sometimes the chickens really do come home to roost. Now, let me ask, if you had been on the phone to my friends, what would you say? What can we say at a moment like that? Well, we're in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through to 17 this morning. And to be frank, these are some of the most tragic chapters in the whole of the Bible. They're the moment when David's fatal flaw finally brings the whole of his kingdom 
crashing down around his ears. I suppose you might say that they're the moment that David's chickens come home to roost. And before we get to what you might say to David or to anybody else at a moment like that, where we need to start this morning is with the fact that that moment of the chickens coming home to roost, of his kingdom crashing down around his ears, is right. That's the truth. However heartbreaking it might be, judgment must fall on David's house. That's the first point this morning. Judgment must fall. Um, Now, it's three chapters, and we're not going to try to cover all of them. Um, Actually, I want us to focus in on just that little paragraph that goes from 30 to 32, really. And so let's go straight to the darkest moment in the chapter, uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 15 and verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went, And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And so all the intrigue of the last couple of weeks has finally come to a head. Um, Absalom, David's son, who was so angry last week, has now risen up against his father and seized the kingdom. And David, outthought, outmaneuvered, ousted, is on the run. It's a crushingly sad moment. 2 Samuel chapter 15, it's a chapter that's bathed in tears. And so verse 23, when they cross the brook Kidron out of Jerusalem, all of the people weep as he go. And as they make their way up the Mount of Olives, all of David's retinue have tears streaming down their faces. And David himself, with his head covered and his feet bare, and has tears running down his cheeks. It's crushingly sad. Of course they wept. Just think of what's gone, the kingdom, that great beacon of hope and light, that, that, that great beacon of peace in a world that is at war, had been left to the wolves. The sweet psalmist of Israel, who could tame mad King Saul's heart with his harp, had lost the hearts of his own people. It's crushingly sad. It's horribly cruel, this chapter, And David's kingdom doesn't fall because the Philistines finally rise up and overrun it. It's a chapter that begins and ends with treachery. First of all, the treachery of his own son. One of the things that makes 2 Samuel chapters 13 to 20 so sad when you read them is that David never stops loving Absalom. He loves him. Even when he's rebelling against him, he loves him. Even when he goes to battle with him, his heart goes out to him. The one thing that David wants is Absalom back, and Absalom hates his father and would gladly see him dead. The chapter begins with cruel treachery, and it ends with the treachery not of his son, but of a friend, verse 31. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. It's difficult to be absolutely sure, but it may well have been, it probably was Ahithophel that David was thinking of, when he wrote some famous words in Psalm 41, but you might know them. Even my friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It's cruel. His son and his friend conspiring to tear him from the throne. It's sad, it's cruel, it's desperate. I mean, a book of risings and fallings, of going up and coming down, you might think that there's something a bit hopeful about David ascending the Mount of Olives. You'd be wrong. 
There's nothing good about this moment. And David is emotionally and spiritually and physically exhausted. He's having to trudge up this hill before the wolves catch a glimpse of him and bear down on him and destroy them. In fact, as you read through chapters 15 and 16 and 17, David is never more than a few moments away from being completely undone. It's desperate, no longer the king, an old man, robbed of his dignity, fleeing for his life, and fleeing all the way, not just from Jerusalem, but out of the kingdom, across the Jordan, into exile. It's sad, it's cruel, it's desperate, and most importantly, it is deserved. It's deserved. Now, there's a sense in which that is not true. Uh, One of the really horrible things about chapter 15 of C. Samuel is the ugliness of Absalom's regime when it's compared to his father. Um, Absalom is all posture, all show, uh, built on hype and a shiny new chariot, the ultimate triumph of style over substance. But although David is hardly less deserving of the crown than Absalom, the truth is, and David knows this, he had this coming. He had this coming. His adultery, his murder, his despising of God's word of promise, and then all the failures of wisdom and of justice that have happened since, they all lead here. This is the moment that Nathan told us about back in chapter 12, the moment when the sword would come against David's house. This is the moment that Nathan told us about back in chapter 12, the moment when his neighbours would take his wives. It's the moment when the chickens come home to roost. Verse 30, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And what makes it so crushing is not just that it's awful, and not just that it looks like there may very well be no way back, but that he deserved it. He deserved it. That's the first thing that we have to say this morning. Judgment must fall on David's house. We need to know this. We need to know this partly because it shows us what God is like. God doesn't play favourites. Do you know that? God doesn't let his man off lightly for the sake of the greater good. Do you know that? We might be tempted to think that he does, right? And so Saul gets justice, but David gets grace. You know, because David, right? As long as you say sorry with enough conviction, well, the consequences will melt away. But it's not true. Judgment must fall. Um, I remember the first time that my parents taught me this. And I had been tormenting my sister, chasing her around the garden with a bow and arrow. I think I must have been about eight at the time. Um, And at some point, I chased her around a corner, and I smashed the bow against a pillar or a wall or something, and it broke. Um, And for some reason, uh, my eight-year-old mind instantly thought the best thing to do into that scenario was to say that my sister had broken my bow, um, which I did, um, and obviously she denied it. Something about my track record and my sister's meant that my parents didn't believe me. Uh, And I remember two things about that morning. Um, The first is, um, I remember quite vividly sitting for what felt like hours in the front room of my house, 
with my parents waiting for one of us to break. And it did feel like hours and tell the truth. The second thing that I remember is the shock when, when I did break and I told my parents the truth and I admitted that it was me and I began to say sorry, they disciplined me anyway. Quite right. Quite right. I mean, just think what I've been trying to make happen to my sister. Just think of what David has done. Think of how bad the consequences of his sin have been. Think of last week and all the awfulness of what happened. That's the first thing we need to see. Judgment must fall on David's house. The fact that he said sorry is really beside the point. And that leads to the second point. Uh, we, know to, we need to know this because in the end, judgment must always fall. Do you know, sin, sin is a great salesman. Sin always talks up the positives and sin always hides the consequences. Just think of David. Do you think that had he seen this at the moment that he let his gaze rest on Bathsheba, Two sons dead, another son in open revolt, the capital abandoned, his best friend turned traitor, tears running down his face, him on the run. Do you think if he'd seen that at the moment that he looked at Bathsheba, do you think he would have sent for her then? Of course he wouldn't. 2 Samuel chapter 15 is a great mirror for us. If Israel wanted to know where their sin would lead, if we want to know where our sin naturally ends, it ends here. Judgment must fall. But of course, that takes us back to the question, what do you say to somebody, like my friend on the phone, when it all comes crashing down, when it looks like there's no way back and when they deserve it? What do you say then? In fact, the trouble with my introduction is that I made it sound as though that's only really a question for those who really catastrophically, with style, fall from grace. But if judgment must fall, actually it's a question for us all, isn't it? What hope is left for us when we realise where our sin takes us? Well, secondly, this morning, judgment must fall, but even as it falls... God is at work to bring David back. Even as judgment falls, God is at work to bring David back. Verse 31. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, look, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Even as judgment falls, God's at work to bring David back. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that that this second point is a bit premature. And there's a big story arc that runs through um, 2 Samuel, chapters 13 to 20. um, There's a very clear kind of going out and a very clear coming back in again. And David meets a bunch of people in this chapter, and he meets all the same people in reverse order um, on the way back in later. There's a very clear story arc. There's a very clear pivot. And that pivot is very clearly chapter 18 that we'll come to next week. Um, the battle with Absalom, where Absalom's rebellion is finally put down. Sorry, that's a spoiler, but that is what happens next week. Um, that is the fulcrum. But for now, David is still trudging towards the border. 
Um, and so you might say it's premature to talk about him coming back. But the truth is that the whole way through chapters 15 to 17, the, the author gives us hints about where this is going to end. And certainly David, did you hear that in the reading? David puts himself into God's hands. And so Zadok, the priest, brings the ark out to meet David on the thought he might take the ark with him into exile. And David says, no, send the ark back. If it's God's will that I'll be restored, then I'll be back and I'll see it again. But for now, there's no point in Jerusalem losing her king and her gods. Send it back. Certainly David puts himself in God's hands. And more than that, here's an interesting thing. There's a thing about where David ends up at the end of chapter 17. So he's provisioned by all of his former enemies at a place called Mahanaim. Mahanaim. And Mahanaim is famous in the books of Samuel for being the place that people run away to. It's famous in the Bible as a whole for being the place that God met Jacob when Jacob had been away from Israel to bring him back. Mahanaim. Just read Genesis chapter 32 and you'll find out about it. Actually, there's a whole bunch of other hints. Um, I would say you can ask me at the end of the meeting and I'll tell you some of the others, but I'll be over the road. If you want to track me down, that's where I'll be. Um, The most striking one is what happens here, verse 31 again. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, look, Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his heads. Now straight off the bat, I want to suggest to you that this verse is an encouragement to say your prayers. And did you notice what happens? In verse 31a, David hears the terrible news that Ahithophel has deserted him. And terrible partly because Ahithophel's his friend, but worse than that, it turns out, Ahithophel is the very best advisor in the whole kingdom. Whoever Ahithophel's on their side, they're almost bound to win. And so David does what he does, and he throws an arrow prayer up to God. Oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And you might think that he's kind of wasting his breath. He's just kind of throwing it out there, and then he trudges off. Except, look at verse 32. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, look, Hushai the archite coming to meet him. Hushai is the answer to David's prayer. He's the way that Ahithophel's counsel is going to be defeated. David throws up a desperate prayer, and it took the Lord, I don't know, how long do you think that took? Two minutes? Four minutes? To answer it. Uh, Just as an aside... I guess it's worth asking the question, do we actually pray like we think that in the heat of a crisis, it might be the most practical thing that we can do? Do we actually pray like we think that God hears prayers and changes things? For the full significance, you need to realize that this is not just a a momentary answer to prayer. It is in fact the moment that turns everything in these chapters around. 2 Samuel chapters 13 to 20, they don't end with David in exile and under judgment. They end, like the Bible story as a whole, with David coming home. And it's true that the structural pivot is chapter 18, but the real turning point is here. You see, 
The reason that Absalom's rebellion ultimately fails is because he doesn't kill David when he has the chance this night. And the reason that Absalom doesn't kill David when he has the chance this night is because when Ahithophel tells him that he should, he doesn't do what Ahithophel says. And the reason that Absalom doesn't listen to Ahithophel when Ahithophel tells him to kill David is because Hushai the Archite is standing next door to him and tells David to do something else instead. And the reason that Hushai is there is because he encountered David at this moment, trudging up the Mount of Olives. And the reason that Hushai encountered David then is because in his desperation, David threw a prayer up to the Lord and look, there was Hushai. See, it turns out that the Lord hears him. It's an extraordinary fact, isn't it? Even as he flees, even as a sword of judgment is so obviously falling, with tears flowing down David's face, with his friends betraying him, with hours of night marching left in front of him, God is already preparing the way back. Even as judgment falls, God is at work to bring David back. Now, of course, there's a sense in which we can take this straight across to us. And if the God of grace had mercy on David and pulled him out of this mire of his own making, he can have mercy on us too. And God is the God of the prodigal. And so if you find yourself here this morning or or anywhere else, as one for whom the chickens really have come home to roost, if you have been found out and you're facing irrevocable consequences and there's no way out and you're looking for some glimmer of hope, well, by all means, look here. The God of all grace had grace enough for David and he has grace enough for us as well. Actually, it's better than that. Because the point is not that David is our example. You know, if God was good to David, he can be good to you too. David himself is our hope. If you've been here for the last few weeks, then remember that God's promises to David back in chapter 7, his promise that David would have an eternal kingdom was described as, do you remember this? As God's charter for humanity. See, the hope of Israel and the hope of the world is not that God might treat us a bit like the way he treated David's. The hope of Israel and the hope of the world is that God would keep his promise to David's himself. And so here it is. Even as sin does its worst and the consequences surely fall and the sword of judgment is there, Even in the midst of all that, the Lord is still at work to keep his promise. Every generation of Israelites and of Christians could read this chapter and know if David's sin did not ultimately knock the promise off course, if there was a way back for David, then there is a way back for us too. Even though the sword of judgment must fall on David's house, as it would again on his children, God's at work to bring him back. But actually, I think we can go one better than that. Um, With the benefit of the New Testament, I think we can go one better than that. Because a thousand years after this awful night, 
another son of David's deliberately walked the same path. Did you notice that um, as the reading was being read? He left Jerusalem with his followers. He crossed the Kidron Valley. He came weeping to a garden on the side of the Mount of Olives, where he was met by his betrayer, a betrayer who'd ultimately shared the same fate as Ahithophel. And he threw up his desperate prayers. And he was met by the same combination of loyalty and cursing. A foreigner walked with him to the cross. Others reviled him. And it's important to say this, it wasn't a coincidence the Lord Jesus was deliberately retracing this night in David's life. He was deliberately walking in his steps. He too was under judgment. Jesus too was under judgment, not for his sin, but for ours. His path ended not in exile, but in death. And the sword of judgment fell. And David's sin and Israel's sin, and the sins of all the world, yours and mine, were finally dealt with there at the cross. It's not even though the sword of judgment must fall on David's house, God is at work to bring a way back. It is because the sword of judgment has fallen on David's house, there is surely a way back. And the gates to a kingdom of righteousness and kindness and justice and love and peace have been flung wide open. And so here it is, a word of hope. That for those who know that it's all coming crashing down, and for those who realise that one day it will, whoever you are and whatever we have done, no matter how clear it is that we deserve whatever comes our way, and in the end, we all do, we all do, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has made a promise. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has kept his promise. Judgment has fallen, and there is a way back. Let's pray. Father, we praise you so much um, that you are not just a God who sweeps in under the, under the carpets and pretends that your man is better than the alternative. Father, we praise you so much for the confidence that we can have that sin is really dealt with, that judgment really does fall, and yet your promise stands. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has died our death. And we thank you that because he has been raised to an eternal kingdom, every single one of us can have sure and certain and eternal hope. In Jesus' name, amen.